out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the rock guitarist bassist. It's the one and only James Cregan, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Has worked with a lot of people, including family, Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel, Rod Stewart. Was married to Linda Lewis and worked on various albums with her, but has got an amazing discography, including working with Katie Melwar and lots of other people. And has also got a book out very recently titled And On Guitar. Yes, indeed. So this is the interview. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that, that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Jim, it's over to you. Well, I'm afraid I go back quite a lot further. Um, uh, really, uh, Lonnie Donegan um, and uh, Bill Haley, Dwayne Eddy, these are names that would not be known to many of the uh, youngsters these days. Um, and then, of course, The Shadows, were a, a Cliff Richards uh, band. They were a big influence. Uh, so that was kind of, but my brother was an interesting character. He liked all sorts of music. And when I was just, he's six years older than me. And so he was bringing home jazz albums and also classical albums. So I had a quite an interest in the, on the radio. There was, there was sort of uh, Radio Luxembourg you listened to from rock and whatever else that was going on. So, yeah, I'm, I was right there at the beginning, if you wish, with Bill Haley and the Comets. Mm-hmm. Because you were roughly-ish the same age of Mr Bowie and also Lemmy from Motorhead, who were born in the same year. I mean, whenever they were asked about their early musical influences, they both said Little Richard and then it would be, you know, Elvis and Eddie Cochran and Buddy Holly. So was was Little Richard somebody that stirred you and people like um, Bowie? Of course. I mean, but that was a bit later. I think I might be, I'm definitely older than David Bowie will be. I'm, I'm going to be 77 in the next year. So uh, I think that's older than David would have been. Um, I'm not sure. Do you, do you know what year he was born? I think it was six. I think it was 67 he was born. Oh, no, no. No, no, no. So, so, no. 47. 47. Okay. So I'm a year older. Yes. But, uh, I didn't, I mean, I think basically because a lot of your influences come from what's going on in your family when you're a kid, you know, and my family, my sister was into traditional jazz. This all predates um, uh, Little Richard getting into England. I mean, this predates it. I mean, I was looking at something, uh, I was looking at one of those things you find on YouTube. I thought it was about Jeff Beck, who I was so sorry to see die just just the other day. and uh, and skiffle, skiffle was something that all the kids in school, like I was probably twelve. Skiffle was a big deal. Everybody had a guitar. All the kids in your class all formed skiffle groups. And that was Lonnie Donegan's influence. And that's I was the only one out of my group that carried on playing the guitar. The rest of them fell by the wayside very quickly. Yes. And, uh, but, but yes, I remember. I think it was Bob Dylan was very influenced by the world world of skiffle and also the Beatles so I we don't yeah. we don't really appreciate the importance of Lonnie Donegan really do we and um no I don't I, think he's very cool I think he's a very cool name to to drag up it's not as cool as saying little Richard who was 
who was, of course, the epitome of cool. Yes, absolutely. But then you would have been that perfect age to kind of experience that first wave of the, I suppose, not only the teenager, but the the rise of the the Beatles and the Stones and the Kinks. Did you did you kind of sense something kind of quite drastic happening during your your teenage period? Absolutely. I saw the Beatles play at the Odeon in Bournemouth to, you know, a crowd of probably... I think the cinema held about 2,000 people and they were the top of the bill of a, a, those days you had sort of variety pop um, tours that had people like Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas, uh, those kind of bands on it. And um, the Beatles did 20 minutes and you couldn't hear anything they played because of the screaming. Yes. You, know, you would hear them in the opening, like they, I think they did, um, let's see, what did they, they played their new single, I think, which might have been Help. Or something like that. I can't remember exactly. <laughs> but, but one of them, they, they they had this thing. They did two shows. They did a matinee and an evening show. I went to the evening show with my girlfriend. Had front row seats in the balcony, which was great. And uh, one of them was wearing a. I think it was John Lennon was wearing a full beard. You know, like the, a kind of one of his Viking beards that come halfway down your chest, which just hooked on over his ears. He was wearing that. And I said, "What well, was funny about the, the wearing the beard?" Yeah, they said. It wasn't John Lennon, it was George Harrison. And I went, no, no, it was absolutely John Lennon. And so they obviously had this beard that they would, whoever got hold of it first would be the one to have the fun to wear it because they were obviously so tired of playing gigs where nobody could hear them that they would do anything to amuse themselves, which is something I know quite a lot about. Yes, absolutely. And did you, I mean, when did a guitar or a musical instrument appear in your life? When did, how did that sort of occur? Well, I got a guitar for my, um, no, for Christmas when I was 12, and I was 13 in the March, so so 12 and three quarters I, first, I got my first guitar. And I got it actually sort of by accident because I had seen a, a, a catalogue with a, an Elvis Presley guitar in it, which was really nothing more than a glorified ukulele. It was made of plastic. It had a picture of Elvis on the front. And it had a little box that went over the neck and it had push buttons on it. And you pushed down the button and it would would mute or, or fret some of the notes and you could play a chord. If, so <laughs> it had six buttons to play different chords on the, uh, without having to use your, your left hand, which was... Um, uh, which which I, was brilliant. You didn't have to bother learning anything. So it didn't show up in time. And so panicking, my father went out and bought an acoustic guitar for me. It's probably on Christmas Eve, so that I didn't wake up with nothing on Christmas morning. And that bit of good fortune meant that I had a real guitar in my hands at that age, and I haven't put one down since. No, absolutely. And how did you, um, apart from that kind of little trickery there, did you get guitar lessons or did you have a you know member of the family give you some sort of no. ideas? No, I taught myself. Listen to records. Blimey. I mean, there were some blokes you would meet in the, in the youth club that would show you a chord or two. But, do you know, I, th- I credit the fact that I didn't have any lessons and the fact that I'm, uh, uh, I consider myself as much uh, a soloist a lead guitarist, if you wish, um, than, a, than, a, than an all, a, a great... Or obviously, now I'm an all-rounder because I've been playing for so long. But in those days, I didn't know much about chords. I didn't really know how to play any. And if I could, I was kind of poor at it. But I was good at picking out melodies because I didn't have any lessons. So that was what I thought you did. You picked out melodies. I, wanted, I guess I wanted to be Hank Marvin. Yes. So um, 
so so then I when I had my first band at school, which was a, a, a Shadows, uh, was an improv. It was a sorry, it was an instrumental band, and uh, and I was the, obviously the choice for lead guitar player because I couldn't play any chords. <laughs> and was this called the Falcons? Yeah, my goodness. Yeah, well done. Yeah, you've done some research. The Falcons. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, we try. Did you at that stage? Because I know my dad when he. I mean, he was. You know, he was born before the war, but he left school when he was about fourteen. Did you stay on until you were sixteen, or even go on to kind of further education at that? Yeah, stage? I did. Yeah, I did my A levels. Um, uh, but then, by then, I'd moved to London. I was. In, this all took place in Pool. Right. In Pool Grammar School, um, and. I, uh, my father got a job when I was 16, uh, and we armed with, I don't know how many O-levels, uh, I got into a college, I got into, first of all, I got into Harrow School of Art, which was a great place um, for hanging out and meeting other musical people. And I did, I also had a course that was in Harrow Tech, and that at Harrow Tech I was doing English and Geography, A-level. Right. And um, at Harrow Art School I was doing Art. So I would lie to each, you know, school. I'd say, well, you know, I'd get my friends to lie for me. Well, I wouldn't be there. They'd say, oh, he's at the art school today, sir. You know, this would be the tech and the other way around. Um, so, so I didn't really do much going to school at all. And in fact, the fact that I got a couple of A-levels at the end of it, I think it was pretty well a miracle. Yes. And what sort of art were you sort of going for? I mean, what was the kind of artists at the time that you were impressed by all sort of, Copying. Oh, I think I liked I liked Prague, um, and of course the, the surrealists, you know, Dali, and you know, I I had quite a wide interest in art. Not so much the the traditional guys, uh, you know, the old portraiture and that stuff. But um, uh, yeah, Prague was. I, I'm very excited about Prague for some reason. I think one of my friends at school. Was it went on to be a graphic artist, very successful guy called uh, Bill Nims, and uh, and he he would be the one that would sort of lead me down a path to look at uh, different painters and things like that. And of course, M. C. Escher and those kind of people were the very fashionable at the time. And, yes, did uh, you did you sort of start to as the sixties progressed and we were sort of um, obviously I was quite young then, but did you know realize and there was the world of pop art and also performance art. And the sort of counterculture that started to de- develop from mid sixties onwards, did that did that also start to sort of creep into your consciousness? Not so much. Um, the hippie movement was uh, was about to begin, um, and I was I, I really was just fully immersed in music at that time. I think yes. uh, I I was uh, I had, was in bands. Uh, I was in a little blues band at, at college that, uh, that used to uh, used to play at the Marquee, opening for. Um, was, which band was that? Yeah, it was yeah, it was that band um, opening for the Yardbirds, who had it, that had Eric in, in them in those days, Eric Clapton, and um, uh, Spencer Davis band that had Stevie Winwood playing guitar. Yes, and did you and the herd that had um, Pete Frampton? Andrew, uh, Pete, Peter Frampton, Andrew Steele on drums, who we stole. Yes. Uh, he, 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 I think he got kicked out of the herd, I think, or, or something. I, don't, I can't remember exactly, but I poached him for my band and it put the, the band became instantly loads better. <laughs> and then I realised then the importance of uh, the, how, how important a drummer is. You know, with a great drummer, you can do lots of stuff. 
Yes, absolutely. Because there was a there was a, in that day, I, I managed to track him down. I mean, David Bowie sort of references and mentions him in the 90s, a guy who was in a sort of prog rock band, the, apparently the first ever one called Clouds or One, Two, Three. Did you ever sort of see them live at that stage? I don't know if you can remember such a sort of band. I... He, played, he, he played keyboards, but I did do sort of I did listen to some of the music and thought, God, that was quite experimental prog. No, I I missed that. Um, I didn't see. I saw David Bowie and Tin Machine. Is it was that what they were called? Tin- no, yeah, that was in the late eighties. But I remember he was doing interviews and suddenly he started talking about this person in the sixties that or this band from the sixties that he had become quite. He'd been influenced by, but no one had ever heard of them. So okay, he would have been David Jones still then, wouldn't he? Yes, he would have been David Jones. I met him. I, I met him when he was David Jones, and then. Um, I don't think I met him again, actually. I saw the Tin Machine, who I thought were absolutely awful, thought they were dreadful. Um, those brothers. Uh, can't the, think cells, the Cells brothers. Yeah, they were just, I thought they were just brutally awful. I saw him in a club in, in LA. Uh, but I saw the last concert of Ziggy Stardust at the Hammersmith Odeon, and that was brilliant. That was brilliant. I mean, I'm a big Bowie fan, I, I, but I... Bowie as Bowie, not Bowie with the Tin Machine. Those guys, the influence that they, I think it was quite experimental of him, but it was an experiment I didn't enjoy. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and the, was so, so was that in the 60s, your band, was that the Dissatisfied Blues Band? Yeah, you, it was. You, yeah. You were, <laughs> so then, <laughs> did you, then you, in, then you joined Dave Mason as well, then in, from Traffic? In another... no, that's a rumour that I can't, I can't seem to get rid of, but I'll try to get rid of it now. I was, I was in that band, but I wasn't in it at the same time as Dave. Right. And so he and I were supposed to be in that band, but, but we weren't. So, I mean, he, he had to replace me. Or, or uh, something else, I don't know. I don't think he was there before me. I think I was there at the beginning. Julian Covey, who was also known as Phil Canora, who was a really good jazz drummer. And, um, uh, but he decided he wanted to be a singer. He was all right. He was quite a good singer. He was quite a charismatic character, long and thin, with sort of big, dark sideburns. And uh, he could sing all right. And it was a great experience for me to be in that band. I don't know how I got in it. I can't remember. But these were all, I was 19, maybe. Mm, yeah, probably 19. These guys were mid-20s, early 30s, some of them in their 40s. And they were all kind of jazz and blues players. And they were superb musicians. And they kindly took me under their wing and showed me stuff I, I still play now, jazz progressions, uh, chord, jazz chords, how to... Because I was, I was sort of playing, when they play blues, I would sort of play Chuck Berry. And, uh, and they were going, no, 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 that's not what you're doing this. They said, you, you, you've got to use these chords because that's what we're all playing. So you're the, you're the odd man out here. Um, <laughs> it was great. It was, they were fantastic. It was a lovely band. Dick Barton was on bass. Um, Cliff Barton, sorry. Uh, Cliff Barton, who died very young of a drug overdose. It was the first time I'd ever seen anybody do drugs was in that band. And Cliff Barton was the guy, the bass player um, in town. And so playing with him was kind of a badge of honour, it felt like. He was a great player. Yes. Because I did an interview with dear old Terry Reid recently. And he was kind of a, a really young chap who started. I think he was he was probably fourteen when he was started to be in his first few bands. I mean, he was such a young kid. So, were you? Was this like an apprenticeship for some people? Oh yeah, for me, yeah, yeah. 
I mean, my whole life's been an apprenticeship. I'm, I'm waiting. It's like I'm in some sort of college. I'm waiting to graduate. <laughs> I know, get that Keep being put back a year. You'll get the certificate one day. But then, you know, because because with your first, your next band, the, the Blossom Toes, I mean, that's a really way out sort of proggy psychedelic experience, isn't it? I mean, that's 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 yeah. quite something that album, isn't it? I was listening to it and thinking, oh, that's for its time. I mean, because 67, you know, I know you were formed in 66, but 67 was the summer of love, wasn't it? There was the in San Francisco, there was an event in January of the gathering of the tribes with, you know, people like the Grateful Dead and um country joe and the fish and then in in the uk in sort of i think the summertime there was the 14 hour technicolor dream which happened with you know pink floyd and arthur brown and um the usual people who all turned up at those events for it mm. magazine so were you really sort of part of that kind of swinging absolutely 60s? absolutely we did the the alexander palace love-in um which had a band at each end of the of the, the huge exhibition hall and um, do I have that right? Yes. I did think. it have the Did it have the Helter Skelter? Uh, I can't remember. I remember that the power went out on our end, and we we sort of made up a a chant to go. We kept the drummer playing. We we made up a chant that we tried to get all the crowd to sing, "Love me like we love you," or something like that. It was definitely the height of. Of, of flower power and, and you know, I, I thought the hippie movement was a great movement. I really, I really, it, I really liked it. I thought it was, it made sense. It was, it was definitely, um, it was definitely powerful for the youth of the day, which I was one. Yes, and um, and all the the associated drug taking, you know, I was involved in that, too, dropping acid uh, on a fairly regular basis. Fortunately, um, most of my brain cells came back. But um, not not true of everybody. No, um, and um, yeah, those the, the, we played at some festival, free festival. Free festivals were all a go. We were fi- fine with that. Blossom Toes were very much a hippie band, um, in my opinion, anyway. Or at least I was. <laughs> <laughs> I better keep yeah. backtracking here. Somebody in the band was a hippie. That was me. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was it was great. I, I was very impressed with all that stuff. I thought it worked really well. Yes, absolutely. Like like anything, it, it brought a lot of colour. Can you remember much about the the album, your first album, We Are So Clean? Did that sort of, with the tracks that came out did, um, that were on that particular album, were they all heavily rehearsed before you went into the studio? Probably. I can't remember the rehearsals. I remember making the record. Um, it was... Uh, it was recorded on four track um and so there was some of that bouncing across you know you'd, you'd use the four tracks up to cut the tracks one for drums one for bass uh one for guitars and one uh, no f- two for guitars one on each side then you'd mix that down to two and put that two onto another four track machine and th- then you'd have another two tracks for vocals and backing vocals and then if you were really desperate you'd mix that lot down and then you'd have tracks for orchestra and all that stuff. So it was uh, it was a quite a complicated business. I remember singing backgrounds at the same time as they were mixing it. Right? So you, <laughs> so, <laughs> dear oh dear, yes, the luxury we have now with Pro Tools, where you can I can retune individual instruments in a mix. If I don't, if there's a, if there's a bad note by somebody in a mix, I can find that note and tune it. It's it's extraordinary what I can do now. 
Yes, um, and I mean the the some of the songs are, are of its time because I love the tra- I love the one the Intrepid Balloonist Handbook Volume One. Can you? <laughs> can you... Oh dear! Oh well, I wrote this pretty little love song that uh, that was not at that tempo, uh, not with that feel, and uh, that it was decided that the song would go on the record, and then. Giorgio, very unkindly, Giorgio Gamalski was the producer and manager and owner of the label, very unkindly gave it to this arranger who did some quite a lot of arranging on that record. His name was David Whittaker. And David Whittaker decided he wanted to turn it into a polka. So he turned it into a polka. And I hated it with an, a huge passion, but it had been recorded and we we needed to put it on the record. So I rewrote the lyric as in Trepid Balloonist Handbook and, and just sort of took the piss. But I uh, I, I listen to it now and I, actually I, I, I won't listen to it anymore. I listen to it, I suppose, when the, the reworking of this, the Blossom Toes um, album re-released on Cherry Red Records uh, last year or the year before. And I listened to it then because Brian Godding asked me to go and listen to the, whatever it was, the the final um, running order or something. I can't remember exactly. Yes. And uh, and, and then he, he he then sent me the demo of the song that, that was wrecked in order for that song to exist. And it was really quite a sweet little song. I don't know why Giorgio felt the need to uh, to turn it into a polka. I was grumpy about it. And I was grumpy about a few things on that record because the band could play. We were not necessarily the fight. We were not necessarily hot enough to be session players. But we definitely could play and make records. But sometimes that control was taken away from us by Giorgio and he would bring in a bunch of session guys to cut. I think they cut three tracks on the 10 that are on the record. And Jimmy Page is playing on one of the tracks and Alan White these were the, the hot guys in town. And I think there was a function of we need to move faster than these boys. Uh, are, you, know, we, we, you know, the Beatles made that first Meet the Beatles record in one day. Right. right? And the, that was, there was a certain amount of that kind of thought process going on. So we would, it had taken us three days to cut seven tracks. So they were saying, well, we've got to get on with it. <laughs> I mean, spent six months making a record with Rod Stewart and four months making a record with Cockney Rebel. Uh, <laughs> yes. But in those days, no, you could, then nobody wanted to do that. Yes. What was Marmalade Records like as a label? Was it a good experience? Um, well, I was very fond of Giorgio, despite his wretched behaviour on that record. Later on, he, he, gave, he gave us enough respect the, the, the following record, um, if only for a moment, was uh, was the band at work making band music with the sounds that we would play on stage. We could play that record on stage very comfortably, whereas the one we did, the first one, we couldn't do it very comfortably at all. There's too much, too much overdubbing, too much production, and the, the second record was stripped right back and was really the band. Um, yes. When, when you so, went in to record that second album, did it have a sense of a band that was coming slightly to the end of its kind of lifespan? No, not at all. Not in my book. It, 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 this was us really just spreading our wings. We took that album round the country and round Europe. Um, it didn't sell much, 
but the band were gaining in popularity really strongly. We were, you know, we would go, we'd go and play some club somewhere and it would have, you know, 200 people in it. We'd come back the next time, they'd be queuing around the block. Uh, it, and, and the same with the festivals. We'd start off really low on the, on the list and then we would be getting a, a second or third headliner. So the band was certainly growing. Then we had a car crash um, and nobody was seriously hurt, but we were very badly shaken. You know, we hit black ice and rolled the car over and ended up upside down in the fast lane of the oncoming traffic. But this was one o'clock in the morning. So fortunately they could see us from a distance and, and managed not to, uh, to crash into us while we were in the fast lane upside down. A very uncomfortable moment. Um, but uh, Brian Godding, I think, had dreams of, of doing something, possibly just simply to be away from me, because we were two strong personalities. Uh, both, uh, I was sort of supposed to be the lead guitarist. He was as easily as good a guitar player as me, if not better. He was a better songwriter. And I think he felt he would like to get away from my influence. He didn't really think that, that my, what I was writing was what he would like to play. I think it was a, I mean, this is only my opinion. Brian and I have never really talked about this for some reason. Um, and uh, so he decided that, that he and the uh, bass player, Brian Belshaw, would walk away from the band. And, uh, and they went off in a corner and started another group with the original drummer, Kevin Westlake. Um, well, not the original drummer, but anyway, Kevin Westlake and the three of them started a band called BB Blunder, which sadly um, didn't come to anything. I, I, I was disappointed for them. You know, it would be nice if if he'd done well. And then, of course, I, I just kept going and, and little by little became more and more successful. Yes. Which, um, which is, Nick you know, I would have liked to have done it with Brian, but, you know, I don't... I asked him, funnily enough, about 10 years ago, I was... And I've been back in England now for nearly 20 years from living in California. And I was driving down a, a road and I saw a, a poster for, for bands the same sort of ilk as Blossom Toes. Um, Lindisfarne, I can't remember who else, you know, but the, and I thought, you know what? Blossom Toes has become this slightly culty kind of out, outfit. You know, our records change hands on the, on the internet for like 600 quid. You know, the original copies. I'm thinking, why don't we do a series of festivals around Britain just for the fun of it and see what happens? Just just let's go out there and play the old music and see what happens. And I, I called Brian right that minute because that's what, what I'm like. I thought, I'll just call him now. And I said, are you interested in putting the band together and uh, running around Europe and running around England to play some festivals? I think we make a lot of money. And it would be fun. And he went, no, not really. <laughs> that was it. I then toyed with the idea of just doing it myself and bringing my son in to play the other guitar. But um, I think it's just, it's rather a lot of work and I've got, uh, I'm quite comfortable with my own band playing whatever music I feel like. Yes. This is true. This is true. Did you, did you, I mean, then, then sort of as the, the sixties finished, which kind of went slightly on a down slope because you, you know, I mean, it was quite unusual when you think there was Brian Jones died and then Jimi Hendrix 
Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, then you had Altamont. You know, the 60s kind of finished on a bit of a bad note. And I remember talking yeah. to, I think it was Joe Boyd and people like Barry Miles. Oh, okay. oh, oh yeah, Barry Miles. Because I was wondering what he did in, I said, what happened to you in the 70s? You were so there in the 60s, because it was one of those exhibitions at the V&A. Mm-hmm. Um, so You Want a Revolution, I think it was titled. And he said, oh, we were just all totally shattered. We just wanted to sleep. And I realised that often uh, there's a kind of a five-year kind of chapter almost in popular music or popular culture where the next wave of 16 to 18 year olds turn up and they go right we want the next thing don't we and yeah of course you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah and it's kind of it becomes a bit more heavy and it becomes a bit more glam and then there's other bits and pieces and definitely the 60s kind of and the Beatles break up and then something sort of a new world happens so how did you kind of maneuver yourself because you'd obviously been you know working away for sort of six six years really in in the 60s and and have probably been doing it 24 7 so how did the set of early 70s develop because you you form another band don't you all set up another band yeah um when blossom toes broke up i was really i was disenchanted with it all and i got an offer from a friend of mine called sean phillips who had a place in positano in italy he said i'm going to do an american tour but first i'm going to i'm going to write the music for a play would you like to come down to my place in Positano and we'll write the music together? And um, I said, yeah. So I went down there. Of course, the, <laughs> the the job for the play disappeared, you know, right away. The American tour that I was supposed to do disappeared. And so I'm stuck in Positano with Sean and uh, without any money. And so I, I did some busking along the 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 coast of um, Amalfi in Sorrento with these two absolutely beautiful girls who lived in a, a run-down palazzo in Positano. Um, and we would ride our scooters into Sorrento, uh, play half an hour walking, wandering around the cafes. And, and one of these girls had a six or seven-year-old boy, handsome as you like, and with a, he would go around with a bag and people would throw money at it We'd play some Bob Dylan tunes and I don't know, whatever else. Uh, then we'd uh, we'd get back on our scooters, ride 100 yards up until we found another restaurant, we'd go in there and spend all the money having lunch. And <laughs> <laughs> leave enough money for groceries for the evening meal. This was a brilliant way to live. I loved it. Yes, nice. <laughs> oh, yeah. But then... Fun. But then you think, what happened? Do you then, when does, because you have another kind of quite a, a psychedelic band, Sync, no, Stud, do you? Stud, yeah, the, the jazz uh, rock trio, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah that was, uh, okay, so um, when I, I, I so I got, uh, I, I, I didn't, I was in some other band. I, I went from Positano to Portugal and stayed with the, a very, very wealthy guy who's had something to do with Kellogg's Cornflakes. Um, he had a band down there in Portugal. And I stayed there for about, I don't know, six months or so, playing in that band. They had their own club, which was sensible. They always had a gig. Uh, but I got tired of that, and I could see it wasn't really going anywhere. And I didn't really, really like the music. Uh, so I went back to London and was offered a job from the guys who had broken up with Rory Gallagher in taste. And they, they were great fun. Uh, John Wilson and Charlie McCracken, John Wilson on drums, he was the band leader. And he wanted to do something that was in the, along the lines of Tony Williams' lifetime. 
Uh, and so I was, my job was to try and be something like John McLaughlin. Well, uh, John McLaughlin and I are about as tight, close musically as it is from where I'm sitting to the North Pole. Uh, um, but I had a crack at it. I mean, I, I, I thought if I played as fast as I could, which in those days was a bit fast, and we would play in weird time signatures like 13 and two-thirds, four. No, sorry, three and two-thirds, four. Um, uh, and John was a really skilled drummer. He could play that stuff. He was very good. He would have been fine in one of those progressive jazz bands. But um, I wasn't. I was just bluffing it. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just making a lot of racket. And, uh, and we wrote a couple of tunes. It was all very mixed up, very eclectic, with a little folk song about a seagull. Uh, and then there would be this bonkers jazz stuff with a lot of um, feedback and silly noises. So we didn't know where we were going or what we were doing. We desperately needed a producer, but we didn't have one. And uh, eventually... I thought, as unlike the Blossom Toes, we were people were leaving in droves. We'd we'd sell out the first club, five hundred people, because of taste and Blossom Toes, and uh, and then next time there'd be three hundred people, and then next time there'd be one hundred and fifty. I could see this is obviously not going to work. Also, I didn't really like the fact of the sort of semi dishonesty about me pretending I knew what I was doing, right, and, and thinking I could fool people. And I might have been able to fool a few people, but the truth was, I felt I was a charlatan. I mean, I don't, I've always felt I'm a charlatan up to some point because there's so many gaps in my musical knowledge that, that I feel somebody will tap me on the shoulder one day and say, hang on, son, <laughs> you, should, you shouldn't really be here. You know that, don't you? <laughs> but, but it hasn't happened yet. Yes, I tapped myself on the shoulder on that one and said, come on, get out of it. Yes. Still close, still mates. With uh, I went to see John Wilson um, a few years back and we laughed and carried on. He's a wonderful guy. Yeah. As I said earlier, it's very important to me that I work with people I like. So you'll hear me say how lovely these people are, but that's only because I choose to work with great people. There's no point in in, in working with ourselves. No. Yes, no, it, no. It, it brings you down, makes you grumpy. You know, you you end up having rows or even fights. You know, nobody wants that. Don't just no. go away. Walk away while you can. No, no, you have too many internal conversations on your own and <laughs> muttering about what you want to say, but you don't. But then, but you walk straight into family, don't you, with Roger? And mm. th- that must, and you, and you do get an album together and a tour with Elton at this stage. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we toured America with Elton John. Yeah, that was that was a fabulous tour. That was wonderful. Um, had he had he by then uh, done Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, or was that still to be written? I think that was still to be written. What uh, Rock's album was uh, Daniel, my brother. Oh, I think, I think that was just called, I think that was his kind of album called Elton John, wasn't it? Or it could have been. I think it was the second one. Yeah, yes. It, it was, was uh, uh, I'm not very good at years. I remember um, I joined Rod in 1976. I seem to remember that for some reason. Uh, and, and before that, I did a couple of years with Steve Harley. So we're going, that's probably 1972, three. Yeah, it's probably 72, we're touring America with Elton. Because I remember one of the thing, one of the films that had a you know, bit of an impact when I was younger was the first ever Glastonbury film of 1971 at Worthy Farm. 
And um, there was this fantastic clip of Terry Reid singing one of those songs. And Linda Lewis comes in, doesn't she, and does that amazing vocal. And I managed, and recently I managed to do an interview with both Terry and Linda. And then I sort of found out that you, you well, married, but also did four albums with Linda during the sort of the 70s, which is like, you know, alongside people like P.P. Arnold. I mean, she was just the most amazing vocalist. So Yeah, she's a great singer, yeah. Amazing. She's on Do You Think I'm Sexy? She's on uh, Come Up and See Me. You know, she's on loads of any, anything that I was in. It would be, it would, it would be a moment where I get a, a, a nudge. Uh, any chance we get Linda to sing on this? <laughs> <laughs> the answer was always yes. Well, she's got a lovely story of that festival with David Bowie, you know, and Terry, you know, the night before where they all obviously were on smoking something and having a nice time so you know it was it, it was of its time but yeah. but did you find because you worked on four of the albums I know she was saying that it was always a little bit frustrating that none of them quite did it and I know Joe Boyd when he worked with Nick Drake also had that slight frustration that it was like it just doesn't quite happen did you mm. find that experience a little bit with Linda working on on those kind of albums that each one was like this is amazing but somehow it's not still not going to quite yeah I mean we we did a song called remember the days of the old school yard that was a Cat Stevens song uh, uh, supposedly written for Linda because they were lovers before I ever met Linda she was a Cat Stevens lover for a while um, and he he liked her very much. Took her on the took her on tour when she was when she and I were an item. He asked Linda to go on the road, and so we did a. I was the band leader, and we did a a, a tour around the world with and, and and I became friends with all those guys. You know, Alan Davis particularly, his guitar player, who I saw last week, who's now eighty. Right? <laughs> Who knew? Yeah. Who knew we'd last this long? This is um, impressive. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it was frustrating a bit, especially after we got that hit with Rock and Doodle Do, and I thought, okay, we've sort of cracked it now, but that that didn't uh, convert itself into massive album sales, and um, the, the remember the days of the old school yard was really. Um, it was a bit of a busy song. It was a bit overproduced, but it was a turntable hit. It was on the radio all the time, but it didn't translate into people buying it. I didn't understand why. And the, but the, the the rhythm section were the guys who were on bo, Blow by Blow: Clive Shannon on on uh, on bass, Richard Bailey on drums, and Max Milton on piano. The only difference was it was Jeff Beck on guitar instead of me. <laughs> Yes. Only a little difference. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. I mean, what was the experience of doing Woman Overboard? Because this is kind of, you know, the budget is big at this stage, isn't it? And you've, yeah. got, you've got Alan. Is it, I don't know, how do you pronounce his surname? Toussaint? Uh, Alan Toussaint. Toussaint. Yes, Toussaint. Uh, Alan, Alan Toussaint. It's, that's where the emphasis is. Alan Toussaint. Um, well, he, uh, see, I think... Here's how that story works. Linda wanted Alan Toussaint to produce the record, but she, Alan, he always worked with with a band called The Meters. That was his studio band. Unfortunately, when she went down there to work with with him and those guys, those guys were on tour with the Rolling Stones. So she got the B team. And although they were still very good, 
they were not the meters. I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit like going to Muscle Shoals and not getting the right guys. Right. Um, so she was not that happy. We came back with the record and she asked me, well, the record company asked me to go in and fix it, which was a bit odd, really, because I'm a, you know, a, a big fan of Alan Tucson, didn't, really didn't want to mess with his work. But, you know, the backing vocals weren't very good. The mix wasn't that great. So I went to the studio and, and fixed a lot of it. So I get a credit there. And, and, and Alan Tucson didn't do the whole record. I think I did, I think I produced about four tracks. Uh, he did, uh, I can't remember exactly. There might have been more than, more than just he and I on that. But I never even met him, but I'm a huge fan. Yes. Yes. Some of those records were brilliant. Yes, he was a heavy, heavyweight in every way. But then, I mean, also you you capture that that period of the seventies beautifully. Just interestingly, there is this kind of obviously there's lots of narratives for the seventies. I mean, punk comes along, so obviously punk isn't hasn't come into your discography at all. Was that just a, a musical scene that you were just kind of looking at at? in the corner of your eye thinking, oh, yes, that's interesting, but that's not my bag. Yeah, that would be about right. I have a thing about tuning, about being in tune. I have a thing about it. Uh, it's it, One of the ways I, you can make me feel ill is to take me walking down um, Melrose Avenue in the summer when the, all the doors are, or, or the times when the doors of all the shops are open, and the music is blaring out. As you move from one store to the next, halfway down the sidewalk, you'll be able to hear both kinds of music simultaneously. They'll be in two different keys. There'll be two completely different songs. And that will make me feel ill. The, 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 I, my mind doesn't want to hear two conflicting keys simultaneously. So... When punk came along and tuning was sort of, shall we say, arbitrary, I I just didn't want to listen to it. I mean, I, I, I can now listen to The Clash and I can listen to some of the slightly more uh, musical elements of punk. But the Sex Pistols, although I, I had a, a, a grudging respect for their fearless uh, attack on society, if you like, uh, and, and I thought, okay... Uh, they've got a, an interesting point of view. I'm all right with that. The rebel side of them, that's okay. Um, I wasn't that thrilled about the spitting. I thought that was a, you know, that's a bit unnecessary. Uh, and, but the the uh, some of the performances I thought were just shit. You know, I'm I'm too I'm too fond of the of real musicality. Um, so uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan of real, real talent. Uh, and I thought the Sex Pistols were great for being a rebellious, uh, iconic, uh, strong antithesis of, of what the, of the sort of, what was it, the, the hair bands, you know, the corporate ballads from people like, uh, I've got more respect for them than people like Winger. And those bands, American bands with big hair and, and overproduced, I didn't like those either. But um, I mean, I remember sitting next to uh, Steve Vicious at the Speakeasy. In a, uh, you know, the tables were all quite crammed together, and I'm sitting there with I don't know some some of my pals having dinner, and he's sitting next to me, and he just for some reason 
known only to himself, decided to glare at me, right? And I thought, that's a bit unnecessary. And, and then he took his, his, his dinner knife and slashed, he started to slash his arm with it. And I thought, no, nah, not really, not really my cup of tea. So I had him thrown out. Yes, well, I'm not surprised that was a bit off-putting. Yeah. <laughs> bit, bit I, I used to go there so often I was mates with all the people who owned it and ran it, you know. There's a bloke next to me slicing his arm. And I think, either give him something to eat or throw him out. Yes, I know, I know. And, and there we are, moaning about people sitting there with our, looking at their iPhones. I mean, you know, which one would you have? Sid stabbing himself or and someone in the iPhone? Yeah, very good point. <laughs> yes, that's very straight. Um, I mean, <laughs> I, I, so you know, yeah, um, not really my cup of tea. No, no, but a good, a good, nice to have that. Well, you know, retrospectively, I mean, at the time, pain in the bum, but retrospectively, it's you know, it's nice to have met someone like that. Ish, not completely. You wouldn't want to. You wouldn't want to let them cats it or water your plants when you're on holiday, would you? That. that. <laughs> It would end in tears. Let's put it oh, that way. <laughs> Sid Vicious is going to cat sit. No, I don't think so. No, oh, dear. No, well, imagine. you know, um, troubled, but troubled man, really. Yes, it, it does attract a few, doesn't it? But then, yeah. I mean, you, you work with Steve Harley and record, you know, come up and see me, make you smile. I mean, when you were doing, you recorded, you were on that record, weren't you? Let's... Mm. When you were recording, because I remember doing an interview, I think it was Chris Spedding, who record was with Harry Nielsen, whom he's been with hundreds. And he did, you know, I can't live if living news without you. And I said, did you at the time think, God, this is amazing? He said, of course not. I didn't have any clue. All mm. the songs I always think are going to be amazing aren't, and the ones that you think, oh, mm. that's all right, are going to be classics. Did How did you feel about such a song that has obviously been embedded in all our DNA ever since it's been recorded? Did you have that feeling? No. I'm with Chris on this. I thought that the guitar solo was was good. I was pleased with it. You know, well, I wouldn't have stopped if I wasn't pleased with it. I mean, we had the band. It was a real band, the, the Cockney Rebel in those days. So if I if I uh, didn't, wasn't happy with what I'd done, I'd have said, I need to keep doing this. And, and, and it was late at night. So and I did it very quickly, relatively quickly. The, the first part of the solo I did is the first thing I played. And the second half, I fumbled it. So I went back and, and finished the, you know, I said when I went back, I just said to them, I'll have another go at it, just the, the back half of it. And uh, that's what we did. And they stitched the two bits together and that's the solo. God, that's amazing. That's just... It was like really quick. I mean, half an hour at the most. Yes. Blimey I had mind. no idea that it was going to become so uh, so iconic and, and loved. I mean, at one point it was a... It, the solo, just the solo, was a commercial for a furniture warehouse or one of those places. Just the solo, no, no, <laughs> nothing, <laughs> nothing yes. else. I thought it's fairly cheeky. Fairly cheeky. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I know what I did laugh. I yeah, um, yeah. I got so I took had a good took a good rise out of Harley over this one, um, and that was it was quite a famous film about men strippers um can you remember what that's that's got the there's a lot of old out of work guys oh who, from sheffield um yeah God. that one yeah yes. That film. yes i remember that one yeah and, and it was a huge hit a huge huge hit 
and it has come up and seen me in the, in the soundtrack and and it's playing away there and I noticed that they dropped one of the verses out so that they could have the guitar solo in it and I couldn't wait to get on the phone <laughs> Steve and say guess what <laughs> <laughs> you as the songwriter you'll be pleased to know that they got rid of one of your verses so they could have me in it <laughs> That's fantastic. I know it's been covered by a lot of bands, actually, and it is kind of. Do you did you do you get sort of still do you get any credit for sort of writing such an iconic or no 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 I got two hundred and fifty quid as a session man that was it. Blimey, that's um that's amazing. Mm. But then but then at seventy seven the royal you know the silver jubilee you know Rod is the man on the street, isn't he? He was number one at the, that famous week. I know, controversial, isn't it? About the Sex Pistols and God Save the Queen. But then how do you, how does, where does the phone call from Rod comes from or his manager to be part of his next project? Uh, well, it was after the Cockney Rebel had uh, played uh, the, the Roxy in, in Los Angeles and Rod saw me playing with Cockney Rebel. He, you know, as I got to know him later, he would go and see all the, the, the bands coming through He'd go and see them in the clubs. The, the, the newer bands that, that hadn't... I mean, we would go to all sorts of gigs. We'd go to the Forum and see The Who, for example. Uh, but we'd also go and see Paul Young playing at a club when he was on his way up and, and Culture Club and people like that. Um, and, and in that spirit, he came to the Roxy and saw Cockney Rebel because we had a number one record at the time with Come Up See Me. And... Um, he he didn't come and talk to me after the show. He 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 left, I think, before the crush started. But he got his tour manager to call me up and say, would you like to meet with Rod in London? And I said, yeah. So I met him at the wrestlers in Highgate and I had a couple of pints. We got on great. And he said, well, you know, I'm interested. Are you interested? I said, yeah, could be, yeah. You know, I'm, you know, I'm in a successful band at the moment. Um, but I guess it would depend on a few things. Um, and so he said, okay, and then he never called. So I thought that was over with. Then fast forward a couple of months, and Cat Stevens wants Linda, he wants to record Linda Lewis singing, uh, I can't remember which song it was, uh, but he's going to do it in LA. And he says, and, and because I knew him from the tour we'd done together, he said, uh, uh, but would you would you bring Jim as well? And she said, yeah, of course. So the two of us go off to LA. I'm playing on these four tracks with the best LA session guys, you know, Willie Weeks and uh, Ollie Brown and, and uh, uh, Ray Parker Jr. on guitar. I mean, the, the in, in A&M Studios. I mean, it was this was the, the I was suddenly in the top of the the session world, and just bricking it. These guys were just so good. And I was like, just hanging on by the skin of my teeth. Uh, but anyway, when the tracks were cut, uh, it was time for Linda to do the vocals. And I, I had a, a day and a half off. So I, I called Rod and said, uh, are you still looking for a guitar player? And he said, yeah, we are. He said, in fact, we're rehearsing tomorrow. Do you want to come down? So I went down and, and got the job. I mean, they'd seen a lot of guitar players, apparently. But I think... I think Rod and I recognised kindred spirits pretty well right away. You know, I was not in the slightest bit overawed by him. I had no kind of, I mean, I was a fan of his work, but there was never any, you know, oh, you're so fabulous. 
uh, and, and I sh- I don't, I'm not worthy of being in your band. It, would, it, was, it wasn't any of that. It was like uh, we were two blokes who liked to get a drink and uh, loved the same kind of music. Yes. And, and, uh, and I was a Faces fan, of course, as many of us were. I loved the atmosphere that Rod was able to create and, and the whole of the faces as having met all of them and worked with, you know, Rod, worked with um, Ronnie and uh, worked with Kenny. Um, I, I had a, a lot of time for how they went about doing their job. And so I felt I could contribute in that sort of carrying that tradition on with Rod. And I think he recognised that too. Yes. So, uh, so off we went and sort of still going on. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I always remember because I was a massive fan of John Peel and he went, once said that one of his most memorable nights was when Sunderland, that must have been in 1973, won the FA Cup against Leeds. And that evening, I think the Faces were playing in Sheffield, um, Sunderland. And he said the atmosphere, you know, was absolutely yeah. amazing. So yeah, it would have been, yeah. Yeah. He would, you know, he knew how to to pack a crowd. And this is kind of Rod in that point where he'd become incredibly from the faces and being part of the band to this kind of the, a megastar, really, hadn't he? I mean, this was like a huge bit. So this was, I mean, unlike the Stones where there's a band, this is Rod with all his kind of blonde wives. I think he was just with Britt Eklund at that time. He was at the time, yeah. yeah. That, I mean, that, going out with Britt Eklund did him a lot of good in terms of making him... Uh, a, a real celebrity, not just a, a singer, but he became a celebrity over that. Yes, absolutely. And, and, you so know, he, and he handled it. You know, he handles all that stuff very well. The uh, the only downside was when he when he married Alana Hamilton. Um, Alana really wanted to be a socialite. Uh, that was her aim: was to be hanging out with the A list only. Uh, people in LA and Rod didn't mind hanging out with some of the A-list, but they had to be interesting. And just because you're an A-lister doesn't mean you're that interesting. You you know you can be if you're an actor. Some actors don't have much to say without a script. I mean that's really sadly. I mean I went to some of those parties where where uh, as I said in my book, the only thing that Alana and I had in common is that we were the only two people in that room that weren't household names. It was just packed with A-list celebrities. And some of them were fun and some of them were dull. So Rod wouldn't just be interested in having the, the dull A-listers around. He would only want the, to hang with the people that were good fun. And, it, yeah. and it, if he were good fun, it didn't matter whether he were the, uh, played football in the, in the local team that he were, played with, the, the, um, the Exiles. Um, and he would much rather have the Exiles around for drinks than... And the band ran for drinks than the A-list partiers. I would imagine it was. We found it just more. It was more at home with it. He's kind of he's kind of a working class boy, deep down in there. There's a working class lad. You know? Oh yes, Rod the Mod. There is an amazing bit of film mm. of that from the sixties where I don't think he'd even made records, but someone must have been filming. You know, this young person walking around London, and I just oh, yeah. always, I always find that quite amazing that you know a film stock must have been expensive, and they just picked up Rod Stewart. You know, who, yeah, wasn't that bizarre? It was. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, I saw that. I've seen that, that footage, and it was it like came out, only came out uh, in the last sort of ten or fifteen years. I mean, given that he's been a, a success from thirty or forty. You would have thought whoever had that bit of film would have gone, uh, you know, this is all. And so you'd always see it when there was a documentary about Rod, you'd see that footage. You never did. I remember when he when he, it 
he, he heard about it, uh, he was very excited. He said, you're not going to believe this is my mum and dad are in it, you know. And it was like, well, this is really cool. Yes. But when you when you got to, I think it was about the third album you'd worked on, Tonight I'm Yours, this is where you're a producer of the album as well, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, co-producer. That Rod and I would do it together. And this was it, um, was it Record Plant in LA? Yeah. So had you sort of moved to America at this stage? Oh, yeah, I moved to America um, in 1980. Um, I did a year of... So I, I, I moved there permanently in 1980, but I was living in LA in hotels uh, from about 1978 to 1980. I had a beautiful home here in Surrey, and uh, I was never in it. I was in hotels, and I, I said to Linda, who was my wife at the time, uh, let's sell up and go and live in LA. So we did. And uh, then sadly, shortly after that, she and I fell apart. But uh, I, I lived in LA for 22 years. You know, and, and when I said to Rod, he said, why don't you come and live here? And I said, well, I don't know anybody. He said, well, you know me. <laughs> I don't suppose that'll do. <laughs> yes, this is good. I mean, did I mean, because I remember hearing Rod talking about his career and going through the decades. And when the 80s, he he kind of starts to sort of go, oh, well, look, can we skip to the next bit? Did he find towards the latter part of the 80s the work kind of wasn't satisfying his creative kind of, I don't know, appetite? I think um, Alana Stewart was a very poor influence. I think she... She thought of the band as staff. That would give you an idea of, of kind of where her head was at. And um, she was busy kind of pulling him in the direction of let's be more fabulous, you know. And uh, he, he he never used to show up late for, for rehearsals or writing sessions. And we would, we would start at about midday or one or two o'clock. And we'd be there and Rod would show up at five and we'd all be going, well, by this time, we're kind of, it's not like the Rolling Stones where they, that's the way they work. This was new for us. Rod had never been, uh, he's not, he's quite good at being on time and he expects you to be on time too. Suddenly now he's not. And suddenly he's hungover and he's not throwing himself into it as much as he, he did in the beginning. It might be that he was getting fed up with the, the lineup, you know, maybe we'd, he felt we might have have come to the end of the creative road that we were on. I don't know. I've never actually talked to him about it. Um, there's, there's, there's quite a reasonable philosophy, never ask a question if you don't want to hear the answer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is sometimes true. Because what I sort of have noticed, and this is a bit of a sweeping statement, but sometimes an artist who is on the zeitgeist in one decade isn't quite so on it in another. And I mean, David Bowie's kind of 70s work's amazing. His early 80s work, not great. Latter work, you know, it's the Tim Machine period. Yeah. Not good at all, is it? Um, I mean, you know, I often sort of wonder about that because it's like suddenly, you know, people are, instead of sort of like being ahead of the curve, you can suddenly realise they're, they're slightly copying what's popular. It's like, what's popular? What's number 10 at the, you know, what's in the top 10? Shall we just kind of try and get that sound? And then they discover their next chapter, but they're going through a bit of an awkward phase. I mean, I just wondered if you sometimes felt that with 
I don't know, Rod, some some of the stuff that started to come out during that that kind of mid eighties latter part of the decade. Well, I I think um, I think you're right that that does happen. The that you as you're transitioning from one place to another. But for, for, to to be fair to people like the Rolling Stones. They've never ever well. That's not true. They did have there was a moment or two, wasn't there? I can't remember. Was it Satanic Majesty's request? There was an album in there some time back where they actually did run away from the from the blues as their roots, and and they and they came back again. You know, they, so so you when you when you get a Rolling Stones record, you've got a pretty good idea what it's going to be like. And I'm a big Rolling Stones fan. I really really admire them. Uh, they they've made wonderful records and they're great songwriters, fantastic songwriters. Um, but uh, yeah, I suppose that was happening. I don't know that I was analysing it as as accurately as you are. I was living it, so you're in a complete you're in a bubble that's different from everything else. You what we would do is just write whatever we felt like. That would be, that was the kind of understanding. And I've always written that way. I mean, I can write, I, I, one day I woke up and, and wrote a rap, okay? And I and I am not a rapper. I can't rap myself, I'm waiting for somebody to sing it. Um, but uh, and then another day when I was driving home, I wrote something that's, that I would describe as popera. Um, it just this this melody appeared in my head, and it was an operatic melody. And so I wrote a song. I had um, somebody, one of those young, sort of semi-operatic people, sang it. Um, can't think of his name now, but it, you know they had the um, oh dear Ennio Morricone. Have I got that name right? Something like that, isn't it? He's a he's a he's a big classical uh, guy. He's got his own orchestra down there in Italy. Uh, he did the music and this other right sang, sang it and you know i so i i'm i'm that's what i'm what, what i'm trying to illustrate here is is i don't have any um, boundaries on what kind of music i'm going to write so sometimes these i'd offer these songs to rod they wouldn't necessarily be finished they might have just be a sketch and and it would lead him off down this road and, and phil chen would write things that were essentially reggae based or uh, there was a guy called um, uh, Negril, what was that the name of the record? It was a kind of Jamaican um, sort of soft jazz. Was, uh, we had influences from everybody. Yes. And so we would stray away from our the core thing that really where we all would have met if you turned the clock back 20 years, which would have been the blues um, and, and blues and rock. We would move away from that um, every so often, and you'd end up with um, with things like uh, "Do you think I'm sexy?" For example, you know, a classic. Uh, because you also you co-wrote um, "Forever Young," didn't you? I did. Yeah, I did. And that is one of the most fantastic songs ever, isn't it? Oh, I mean, bless you! Thank you so much. It, it is such a beautiful sentiment and such a lovely melancholic. I love melancholia um, feeling as well to it. Can you remember? Because this was kind of was it around the kind of latter half of the eighties? Yeah, I remember it very well because we were working in the studio on something else, on a song that wasn't. You know, we would. The budgets were such that you could go in the studio and you didn't have to be rehearsed or anything, you just play it. So we're working on this song, it's not going very well. And um, 
And we can all feel it. The song's not coming together. The groove isn't right. The vibe isn't right, you know. So Rod says, um, he said, tell you what, I'm going to take a break. It's sort of the middle of the afternoon. Right? And he said, let's, let's, take, let's all take a break. Uh, I, I need to go and buy us something, uh, you know, a pair of shoes or a Lamborghini, I'm not sure which. <laughs> and, uh, and so he buggers off. And Kevin and I, Kevin was my co-writer in those days. The pair of us wrote a lot of songs for Rod. Um, but the two of us sitting around, like, what are we going to do? Should we, have we, we've had lunch. Uh, we could go, it's a bit early to go to the pub. And I said, well, you know what? I, I've, I've got this idea that I came up this morning. <laughs> and he said, he said, okay, go on then. So I play him what turns out to be the verse. The melody, just the, just got the melody and a couple of chords underneath it. That was the the melody I had, and uh, and so Kev says well, that sounds quite nice. So we started to work the song up with with just a melody and chords, and we're still working on it when Rod comes back. He says, well, "What's that?" And it was something we you know Jim came up with this morning. We've fleshed it out. And we've got a chorus and uh you know what do you think you want to have a go at it and he said um, oh yeah i really like it so let's cut it now so having conceived it in the morning worked on it with kev getting the blessing from rod we cut the track and and it was you know we we did it in a kind of u2 style it was very fashionable at the time but i like i mean i if it was, I wouldn't do it if it was fashionable and I didn't like it. It was fashionable, but I liked it. I mean, I liked, I thought you two were a great band. And now a great band. So we've got that kind of strum to it. We cut the track and then it got put away and Rod, Rod wrote some lyric and really, really good lyric. I love what he wrote. And he, he sang it. Then fast forward towards getting towards the back end of the album, and we're listening to things and thinking, what where do we add some orchestra or where do we add some extra guitars or anything, anything at all? And we're listening to it and and Rod, and it's going past and when it's finished, Rod says, um, I'm not sure about this one anymore. I, I'm not sure if I, I I really like it. I don't know if it's going to go on the record. And I my heart sank for on two levels. One, because I really liked the song and I was really pleased with it. And on the other one was the say, waving goodbye to about a hundred thousand quid, right? <laughs> or more, depending. And uh, so I didn't say anything. I just kept quiet. And the engineer, um, who never ever offered an opinion ever, because you've got that many people in the room. You've got you know me and Rod are already producers. We've got our own producer, um, uh, the bass player from Chic, uh, Bernard Edwards. He's the producer. We've got, you know, Kevin Savigar, who's also, you know, we've got a lot, there's a lot of egos in that room. So the engineer very wisely says nothing ever. And he turned from the desk and he looked up at Rod and he said, oh, I wouldn't do that if I were you, Rod. This is the best song you've got. And there was this <laughs> silence. I, I'm going, thank you. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. And Rod said, okay, we'll keep it then. Back in the game. God, that's excellent. That's really good. It was so close. God, it was so close, I know. And it was, the, and it was a hit, of course. Yes, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it is, you know, it's going to be with us forever. Did Andy Taylor also, was he also part of the... Yeah, he was part of the production team. I think he got... He was very badly behaved. 
you know, and we've gone past the days when you can be so messed up that you can fall into the tape machine and, and while it's running and, and everybody will laugh. You know, you're not, you would come in at that sort of two o'clock in the morning after having been out doing all sorts of bad things and tell the engineer to, the second engineer to set the tapes up and then would start mucking with the track between two and four in the morning without Rod being there or anybody else. And that was definitely frowned on because he, not, you know, not my favourite person, Andy. Not, not at all. Um, so he was, he was uh, sort of, should we say, sidelined. I don't know if he was fired, but he was sidelined. He got the red card, didn't he? He got the red card. I guess <laughs> yeah. he'd, he'd had his Duran Duran moment, hadn't he, really? So it was probably still... You know, he, there's, a great, there's a lot of bollocks that went on around that time because Power Station were a huge act uh, for record they made that great record Robert Palmer sang it Tony Thompson on on drums and and uh, ostensibly um, uh, Andy Taylor on guitar Andy Taylor was replaced by a Hispanic name um, I can't think of his name now anyway his parts were replaced by somebody else and at the time that was not common knowledge and Rod thought that it was Andy Taylor, whereas in fact it was this other bloke. So you've got Andy Taylor in, believing he was getting the man who made that record, and he wasn't. And that <laughs> was... <laughs> yes, poor old boy. You know, that goes on a lot. I mean, I've done it myself. I've, you, you've got to use the guys in the band to get started, and then little by little you, you, you replace them. I've been replaced myself. I, I played on the original version of Infatuation and the producer uh, didn't like it so much and he got Jeff Beck in. Jeff Beck came in and played my parts. And it was found it quite amusing that Jeff Beck's playing licks that I wrote for that song and there's Jeff Beck playing. <laughs> but if you're going to be replaced by anybody, Jeff Beck's the man. Yeah, you, you're you're never going to say no, are you? No. Yeah, you're not going to feel... You're not going to feel that miffed. No. What was it like? Because you did then, you know, I remember listening to it was the World Service had a series called Witness and they 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 feature this kind of concert with Rod Stewart at Copacabana, which is, you know, one of these mega kind of events with the mm. type, was it an audience of millions, wasn't it? You know, coming to the Oh, uh, uh, the Copacabana, uh, yeah, the um the beach, uh, the 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 three million people at the beach. No, I, I left right before that tour. Right. That was the tour I said, no, I'm not sure. At this point, I'd had enough of uh, Rod's management, um, who, as usual, well, not as usual, that's not fair. Um, Rod's original manager, a guy called Billy Gaff, was a very good uh, rock music manager. He, he, as in many management people, had too much control of the finances and decided that his share ought to be bigger without telling anybody, and uh, that caused him to be fired. But his replacement was uh, a friend of Alana Stewart, a guy called Arnold Stiefel, who was a sort of show-busy kind of, I think he'd been an agent for somebody quite famous, like um, oh, one of those pretty famous showbiz singers, um, like not Barbara Streisand, but the other one uh, who was... Uh, Judy Garland's right daughter, 
um, you know, great, good artists, all the rest of it. He had something to do with with that side of it, which wasn't rock and roll at all. No real, no real street cred in any in any form, right? And then, and one of the things that was good about the previous manager is he never said anything to us about anything we had to. to we were, you guys make the music. My job is to sell it and then to get you a tour where you make loads of money. We went, okay, well done. That's what we like. And then you get a manager who comes in and starts thinking that his opinion is of any interest to us whatsoever, which it isn't. You know, if you don't know what you're talking about, shut up. And if you know how to sell the act, great, go and sell it. But do not interfere with the process of making records unless you really think, unless you really know what you're talking about. He didn't. So... I couldn't bear him and he couldn't bear me. I was too close to Rod for his comfort. He wanted to have Rod um, separated from the act, from the band rather. And so this, this process of, of Rod travelling separately, uh, his own dressing room, um, and there was none of the camaraderie of, of a band. It was, I, it was starting to fracture. Yes. And based on my theory that I never work with people I don't like, I said, I can't do this anymore. I've got to go. And also... I was quite happy to stay home. I had two small children. I wanted to uh, produce. I got a job as a staff producer for BMG, you know, and I made loads of records and I stayed home. And I've been doing it at this point for about 12 years with Rod. And as long as it had carried on the way, the way it first started out, where we're all on the same plane, we're all in the same hotel, you know, Rod and I would, and Kevin would travel to the gigs in, in the limo with Rod. Um, and we'd all go out to dinner together. As long as that was carrying on, that felt great to me. As soon as that started to diminish, I realised that this was the beginning of the end of that. And now Rod would be the solo artist that the that he that you know, which he, he was always a solo artist, but this was solo artist with a band feel, a bit like Springsteen, yes. you know, where you get the E Street band and you know they've been playing together forever and they love each other, right? That's what we were like. And then Arnold managed to fuck that up. And, uh, and off off I went. So so I didn't I didn't play that gig. And they and they brought in Tony Thompson, who had played on the record. And Tony could only play Tony Thompson. He couldn't play uh, like uh, Tony Brock, who 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 came back. Who was who was let go and then came back and and took over again from from after Tony Thompson realised that Tony Thompson was a terrible decision. They couldn't play certain kinds of feel, whereas Tony, whereas Tony Brock could. You know, you've got to be an all-rounder. You're going to play Rod Stewart's music. You've got to play a bit of everything. Yes. Um, and, you know, every so often there would be really bad decisions made, and that was one of them. Oh, that's, yes, my God, there you go. But then but then you sort of, in the mid-90s, you, you're sort of back in, you form, is it form Farm Dogs with Bernie and, yeah. Um, yeah. and release two, two albums? Yeah, that was brilliant. That couldn't have been better. It couldn't have been better. It was just fantastic. My God, that's such a Bernie and, and Robin the Missouri and I wrote all the songs, and uh, some of them got covered. Uh, Willie Nelson covered a couple of tunes. Um, so, and, and I'd known Bernie since I was on the road in Family with, with Elton John because when uh, when Bert, we would stay every night and watch Elton and be just mesmerised with how good he was. And, but you'd need, you, you know, it was thirsty work watching us. And so you'd have to go back into the dressing room, to, into the green room and get yourself a Jack Daniels. And lo and behold, who would be there but Bernie Taupin having a Jack Daniels. And, uh, and 
so he and I became pals on, on that tour. We, it was 13 weeks. And then, um, and then we got to make that to make two records. It was great fun. We worked out, we worked from Monday to Friday at Bernie's Ranch out in Santa Inez, which is a couple of hours drive outside of LA. Um, and he had a racquetball court, as you do, and he turned that into the studio. And we would go there and write from 10 in the morning till four in the afternoon with a break for lunch. Then we would all have dinner together. And then we'd get up the next morning and write some more. And some days we wrote over two songs a day. It was it was unbelievably creative time. Yes. I mean, and I loved it. Yeah. What's it like working with such different people? trying to create the same, you know, like we're trying to come up with a song. What Do you sort of think, God, this is going to be, this is completely different to that person I've worked with, that other person I've worked with. Do you think, yeah, this is, this is a very different experience. But again, you know, they've got this amazing CV. Yeah, the, the most entertaining of that particular scenario is uh, writing with Jerry Goffin, who as you may or may not remember, wrote all those things with Carol King. He was the yes. nurse, you know, under the boardwalk. And, I mean, he's, he's in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. And he lived near me in this beautiful Art Deco building. So I go round there, and I'm fairly nervous, right, because the, the, Jerry Goffin is, is heroic as a lyricist. I mean, didn't he write You've Got a Friend? I mean, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. It's Carol King, isn't it? He wrote with Carol King all the time. All they were the in the Brill building together. Yeah. Huge writer. So I go around there. <clears throat> He's very nice. We sit down. We're having a cup of coffee or something. And uh, it's uh, sort of early in the afternoon, sort of two o'clock. I get the guitar out and I <clears throat> start. I'm, I never bring anything with me. I just start writing from scratch. Uh, I, I find that's the, the most, A, the most exciting, B, the scariest, and C, the most rewarding. So I start from scratch and write this little song in the corner, sitting in the corner, and he's on the phone. And then the person on the other phone, who it turns out is his, excuse me, is either his ex-wife or his ex-girlfriend, says something to him, and he explodes, absolutely explodes down the phone, swearing and cursing and threatening and God knows what. And I'm trying to retreat further and further into the corner in case they want to throw the furniture. And then he gets off the phone, he says, oh, I'm sorry about that, Jim. And he cuts out a line of Coke and says, you know, do you want a line of Coke? And I went, no, I don't think so, I'm all right, thanks. I have a cup of coffee instead. <laughs> and it's not that I'm uh, that I haven't done coke because I have, of course, like most people in that time. It's just I don't do those things when I'm working. So, so I said no. So he snorts another line, and then he gets picks up the phone. Says, "Excuse me a minute." And so far, we haven't done any work. I'm I'm working on some ideas in the corner. And he's 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 fuming about the work. So then this goes in between writing the lyric. As we went along, he berated the person. The phone would ring, and he'd scream out as much, slam the phone down. <laughs> so it was like being, it was like being in a war zone. I mean, he would—he'd be quite lovely when he was off the phone, and then he'd turn into this monstrous screaming lunatic, and then hang up and say, "So then, maybe we should go this on this bit. We should the bridge should go like that. <laughs> Couldn't wait to get out of there." And, wow, uh, that is so strange. You know, we did get a song out of it, which I, which I, I made the demo for it. Um, I can't, I can't remember 
what the song was called. And then his manager got on the phone to me and said, uh, listen, Jerry, really like working with you, man, and I'd like you to come back and do some more. I said, do you know what? I've, I've got to go in the studio, and I'm going to be busy for the next couple of months. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, I can't believe I turned down working with Jerry Cotton. But I did. I just I couldn't do it. I mean, I was afraid he'd be that guy again. Yeah. I'd never get anything done. It would be too much, actually. But then in the – so you – you started working work with was it uh, Wyndham Wyndham Hill Wyndham Records Hill, yeah. Yeah, as a BMG. producer and musician? So for four years you worked with people like Janice and Catherine mm. Keane and then Cat Stevens and also Joe Cocker again, don't you? So that's yeah. quite amazing. So this is again the mid nineties to the end of the nineties is an incredible, you know, productive time. Yeah, I I like that job. It was. These guys, the A and R guys, were friends of mine. And what had happened was they they uh, they were running uh, a label at at uh, a BMG. Then BMG bought Wyndham Hill, and then BMG bought Private Music. And suddenly, these two guys, these two A and R guys, um, Patrick Leonard and Larry, darn, you'd be mad at me for getting his name. Uh, I'm old, Larry. Sorry. Uh, these two guys were mates of mine. Uh, I know why, because Larry had had taken one of my songs uh, for the Isley Brothers, and uh, let me get a hit. Mm, can't remember. Can't remember if I got a hit out of that. But he, 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 we knew each other. We liked each other, and he would. Always, I could always get a song to him. So this was our relationship. Then uh, when they got all these, when BMG had bought all these other companies and and just foisted them on the A&R guys, they went, how are we ever going to make all these records? You know, we've got we've got to make something like 20 records this month. How are we going to possibly do that? Let's call Jim. So they called Jim and they gave me an office and a secretary and a parking space and said, come in and make we'll, we'll make records together. You know, we'll give, you a, we'll give you an artist and a budget and your job is to go away, make the record, within the budget, come back, and we'll give you another one. That was what it was like. And it was fine. You know, I didn't mind doing it. I, in fact, quite enjoyed it. Yes. But when it was, you worked... it was proper money, too. You know, that was the other thing. Nice. And, then, and working with Katie Malwar, what was, I mean, these these are two massive hits, albums you worked with her. Yeah, I've got them on the wall here. One of them's quadruple platinum. Quadruple platinum. Double platinum and quadruple platinum up there on the wall behind my desk. Um, oh, Katie Melio, sweetheart, absolute sweetheart. So, so we fast forward to a point where um, where I'm not doing very well in America. I'm not making much money. I mean, I've always got my my songwriting royalties, which which is which are you know f- somewhat substantial, but the lifestyle I was living, they weren't covering it. You know, uh, so I needed other work. I've always needed other work and I always want to work, but the work is drying up. And uh, I was never really in the, a, a big session player, although I played some sessions in America, but it was all about whether or not you wanted me to play me. You, you didn't hire me to play anybody else, you know. And I wasn't that well known in the session world. And when I, although, well, that's really one of the reasons I became a producer because the producers weren't hiring me. So I thought, if I'm the producer, I, I, I can hire other people. I don't even have to play if I don't want to. I'll do the overdubs, but I don't want to be on the track. Mm. I'll hire, you know, other people. So so that was that was great until that stopped. And it's, it's you know, and it was like no good deed goes unpunished. I did the Choir Boys record, got a hit, uh, 
and then they never hired me again. I didn't fall out with them or anything. It was all sweetness, sweetness and light. And I'd phone up um, Nick, whatever his name is, the the the, the head of uh, A&R at EMI, and say, hey, Nick, it's Jim, you know, uh, what's going on? You got any records for me to produce? No, I haven't. And I never got another job from him, even though I'd got him a hit. So I was very, I was very grumpy about that. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, it might have been my fault in some way that I don't know. There's always that risk. Or maybe somebody had said something nasty about me behind my back. There's always that risk, too. It is Hollywood. There's plenty of that stuff. Um, so um, I'm rambling a bit here. I'm trying to remember where I was going with the story. Okay, so then I find myself um, getting a divorce in, in America, um, lost everything that I had, or apart from my royalties, and came back to England with uh, you know 15 guitars, boxes of platinum records, some clothes and nothing else, right? And I, and, and I go and stay with Mike Batt, who's an old friend and is living in a 12-bedroom mansion in Surrey. He's got loads of room and all this, come and stay with me, great. Because he would come and stay with me when he was in America, when he was visiting in America. And uh, shortly afterwards, I'm introduced to this girl he's developing, uh, and it's Katie Melua. Talk about being in the right place at the right time. He's, so uh, he's working on songs and putting, you know, arrangements and things. And he says, do you want to play on the record? And I said, yeah, sure I do, of course. And so I played on that record and it went to number one. And uh, then he said, do you want to go on the road? Because he was managing her. And I said, yeah, of course. So suddenly I've got a proper job. I'm getting, you know, thousands a week. And, uh, and I'm back in business. God, back in the game. I know. Well, that first album she did was just, I mean, it was a call off the search. It's a kind of a classic, isn't it, really? It's That's a pretty, sweet. you know, Kate, I, I interviewed Katie. Or, no, I had a conversation with Katie for, for my podcast that I do with um, with Alex Dyke and Tony Hadley. And uh, she spoke to us for about an hour or so and couldn't have been more delightful. She's still as delightful now, even though she's she's been a success for several years she's she, completely and utterly without any artifice is that the right word yes um as natural and as lovely a human as you could bump into she, I, I absolutely adore her she was so nice on the road she was so she was so cool to hang with you know so i'm a big fan big fan yes a beautiful voice god that voice fantastic <laughs> Yeah. And you did, and and Chris Spedding was also on. Yeah, yeah, well. Chris quite well. Yeah, yeah he's so lovely. That, he's a great guy. God, that's nice, isn't it? It's yeah, good. He asked me to go and play in his band at one point, but I uh, I was couldn't do it. I was busy. Um, but that would have been fun. The two of us yeah. playing together that would have been great. Then, he, he's he's he made a remark that I've quoted. I loved so much. I've quoted it a couple of times. So I don't read music. I can, you know, I'm, I know plenty about music, and I and I know enough about chords to be able to to manage, uh, you know, getting a chord chart. But I don't read dots. Chris does. So we're both sitting there next to each other, looking at the chart, and I'm looking at the chords, and Chris is looking at the dots and everything. And we get to this sort of bar eighty two, and there's a chord, and it's you know it's like an A flat plus nine flat seven augmented six or whatever it is and it's <laughs> and it's quite a lot of symbols after the actual name of the chord the A or whatever it was the B flat and 
<laughs> Chris says to Mike, Mike says, Mike, bar 82. I'm looking at bar 82, top of bar 82. I just want to know, is that a chord I'm supposed to play or is it a fucking phone number? I <laughs> <laughs> thought it was brilliant. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. It's a very nice moment, isn't it? <laughs> Classic. Yes, yes, one of those <laughs> dude moments. Well, he's great. He's great. He's a really good guitar player. He's lovely. A, a good guy. Very good guy. I think he actually sort of has a little bit of a... I think he does an early demo for the Sex Pistols as well, actually. I don't think he plays on the record. There was that kind of idea that he did, but I don't think he did. But from I did an interview with him, and he, I think he demoed their first album or first couple of singles before someone else took it and um, produced it. So, yes, okay. there you go. bit of old Chris. I mean, yeah, he's got an impressive CD, CV. So then during the sort of the, I don't know, the next decade, you you sort of meet up again with Rod, though, don't you? To record- yeah. Um, uh, well, no, Katie Miller came after, after the meeting up with Rod, which was for the Unplugged record. So that came about... Because I, I, I really wanted to play on the unplugged record, right? Um, I thought I'm the I'm the acoustic guitar player in, in Rod's band. If ever there was an acoustic guitar player, it's me. Uh, and this is what I'm sort of known for: is playing acoustic guitar on on uh, several well-known records. So I'm. About to go, I'm, a, I'm now a staff writer for, for BMG, no, for um, MCA, which are now Universal. And they were going to send me to New York to write with a writer over there. Um, and, you know, I, I, they would send me all over the place. That was, as a staff writer, I had to say yes, and I'd go off. And they, they gave me 100000 a year for the privilege. And this is 25 years ago, so, yeah, at least. Yeah. At least maybe 30, maybe thirty years ago, so hundred thousand dollars thirty years ago was a lot of money. So, so <clears throat> they say we want you to go to, to New York, and it's just at the time because I I'm, I mean I'm hanging out with the guy, so I'm not, I know what Rod's up to. <clears throat> I'm hanging out with Rod, but I'm not in the band anymore. So I said to Rod's assistant, I said, uh, by the way, um, I just want to give you a heads up. If you're thinking of calling me up and asking me to do the Unplugged record, I just want to tell you I've got to go to New York the week that you're going to start doing it. And so so, um, if you wouldn't mind, um, just remember that I'm not going to be available, okay? And so I get a call the next day saying, um, you want to do the Unplugged record then? (laughs) I said, yeah, okay. I'll cancel the trip to New York, which I will just postponed it. Really, but, yeah. but funny how that funny. I mean, I, I, I was funny how that worked out because just by saying I can't do it, I got I asked if I would. Fantastic. There's lessons to be learned there, isn't there? Really. Yes. Well, I know how to. I know how to deal with some of that. But still, was with the terrible manager who just was. He then went on to do all sorts of dreadful things at the beginning of that tour, but. <clears throat> The tour itself was very happy. We, it went on, you know, I just did the recording and, uh, and then it, it was so successful. We'd sold four and a half uh, million records. And, um, and, I, and they said, uh, oh, do you want to go on the road? And I said, yeah. And off we went. We, it was supposed to be three months and it ended up being 10. Yes. 
blimey I write because you do appear and you write on one of Rod's very well not, it's not that recent now is it time which came out about 10 years ago Brighton Beach yeah yeah that was a re that was a resurfacing as <laughs> it sounds like some of you are doing a road uh the Rod <laughs> resurfaced as a writer uh, after cutting that track with me right yeah. Uh, he then he then went back to America because that took place here in England. He went back to America, and and realised that he actually had missed songwriting. And uh, Kevin Savigar, who was was one of my songwriting partners for years, uh, was there on the doorstep. And so Rod started to write with him and and wrote loads and loads of stuff with him and and very successfully. Um, but yes, I definitely uh, helped pry the door open. For Rod to write again, yeah, he, like me, I think, and I asked him about this. He said uh, uh, he found that writing the book was he gave gave him a realization that he could still find things to say that were interesting. He thought he'd said it all, but in fact, of course, he had about nobody said it all. It was a silly idea, but he'd got it in his head that he couldn't write anymore, or didn't want to write anymore, and then he wrote the book, and that gave him confidence. The same thing happened to me. Having written the book, uh, I found that I was uh, normally I would look for a lyricist. I mean, having had the opportunity to work with such great guys as Bernie and Rod um, and uh, many other people, I uh, I felt that I wasn't. I would. I guess I, my standard was if I can't write as well as Bernie Taupin, I should get Bernie Taupin. I, and, but then I thought, you know what? Even though I'm not going to be as good a lyricist necessarily as Bernie, I can still write a lyric, and it still may mean something. Just as I'm not as good a guitar player as, as uh, Jeff Beck, it doesn't mean to say I can't say something when I play the guitar because it'll be a different. It'll be it'll be something different. It'll be me, and it'll still have some intrinsic value, even if it's not as great as the value that you would put on something Jeff would do. But it still would be. It might be worth listening to. The same with the idea of writing lyrics. So, so now I write lyric as well. Hey, I, who knew? Did you start writing lyric in my seventies? Well, I think there's yeah, like you said, there's there's often at every decade there is something to write about. I mean, look at David Bowie's last album, Black Star. I mean, that was obviously, you know, dealing with the, his kind of you know that time in life. So when, yeah. but you brought the the book out came out last year. When did you decide that you wanted to capture your your life? You know. <laughs> When uh, when Robin Missouri's co-writer um, interviewed me uh, for Robin's book, as Robin and I were, you know, I was best man at his wedding and that sort of stuff. Um, he interviewed me, and after we'd done the interview, he said, "Well, that was so easy." He said, "Have you thought about writing your own book?" And I, I said, "Well, I thought about it, but you know, I've never got round to it." And he said, "Well, why don't we write a bit and then see if we can get a publishing deal?" So we did. We wrote a couple of chapters and we got a publishing deal. And so then I was in I was in it. I mean, the book would never got written without, without Andrew Merriman. But, uh, but traditionally, uh, people ghost, have ghostwriters. They do a series of interviews with a ghostwriter and the ghostwriter then writes the book. But in my case, I wrote about 70% of it. And, but Andrew's contribution, I can't... Um, I can't express how important it was because 
not only did he keep me working and keep me keep telling me, listen, we've got a deadline, you get on with it, which was really helpful because I'm quite lazy sometimes. Mm. Uh, he kept my notes to the grindstone and then also he encouraged me and then he would take what I'd written and arrange it in the book in a certain chronological order and link it together and write, uh, ex- expand bits that, that could do with expanding. He's a, he's a professional writer. So he, he gifted me uh, the, 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 the idea of writing a book. And, and in fact, we're talk- I spoke to him a couple of days ago. We're talking about the screenplay that, um, that I started and, uh, and I, I decided I'd like to finish it with him. Same sort of thing. I'll write quite a lot of it, but he will definitely be in there. It's, it's, it's a bit, if you're, a, if you're an amateur songwriter and you come to me as a professional, I'll help you finish it. Yes. I won't necessarily have come in with the whole idea, but I'll help you finish it. That's that. He's, he does that for me. It's great. Completion. Completion yeah. is kind of, there, there is an art to completion, isn't there? You, yeah. You've got to know how to get something done. Well, who did you mention just at the beginning of that, who you spoke to, who you said about writing the book? I couldn't quite, did you say? Robin Le Missourier. Robin Missourier, yeah, okay, yes. Robin Le Missourier is the son of uh, Dad's Army star, uh, John Le Missourier, and the son of Hattie Jakes, the comedian from Hancock's Half Hour, and many other things, and quite a well-known film and television personality. Yes. And he was in the Stuart band with me for years. And, and then we were in Farm Dogs together. So he and I were very, very serious, thick as thieves. Yes, amazing. Uh, he, gave the, he, he died uh, last year. And uh, I did the eulogy um, at his uh, memorial service. Good guy. Good, Good guy. Big, yeah. yeah, big. Mo- I mean, just last question: if you if you could have said something to your or advised your sixteen year old self something as you were starting out, is there anything? Even if that person ignored it, is there anything that you would have thought? Oh, yeah, that would have been a really good idea, or I would have nudged that person in that direction, even if they might have gone, "No, I'm still going to go that that other way." Um, I would have I would have told my sixteen year old self to have lessons. I would say that. Um, but there's so many shortcuts available to you now. As a, but there were no teachers for electric guitar from in, in my time. There was no such thing. If you wanted to learn guitar, you had to learn classical guitar. Well, you could get somebody who could show you how to play some sort of skiffly things. But in the beginning, I should have had music lessons. Uh, it would have helped me immensely. I, as a as a session musician, it would have been really useful. The doors would have been open to me that were always closed. Um, and I think one of the things that's really handy is this is before the iPhone arrived with its recording devices on it. If you were out somewhere and you had an idea for melody, I mean, I used to phone my house, tell my wife to hang up the phone and not pick up next time and sing the melody into the answer machine. Right? <laughs> so, so quaint. <laughs> uh, how nice it would have been if I had a piece of paper and a pencil, I could just write the melody down and go, that's what it's got to be. I mean, I thought that was really handy. And then, you know, you've got an idea you want to show to somebody. You say, this is what it is here. These are the, this is the riff, right? I would have found that really easy. And sometimes when I was working with Mike Bat, and he'd have something really complicated for me to play. And I'd say, I, I, I can't learn that this, this fast. It's too difficult. 
give it to me on a cassette. I'll go back to the hotel or wherever it is I go back to. I'll work on it and then I'll I'll have it ready by tomorrow. And I would, you know, I'm I'm, I'm ear trained. My ear training is not that bad, but yeah. like you know, I can't read dots, and I find that I, I wish I had. I wish I'd learned. Too, it was it was always too late. Once I developed my ear, I'd look at a piece of music, I'd study it, and I go, okay, so I know what these these are. I go through the stave. That's this. This is that. That's that. And that must be this. 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 And this. And as soon as I played it, my ear was taken over. I know exactly what it is. I need to look at the dots. So I'm screwed. I <laughs> have <laughs> to unlearn how to hear while I'm playing, uh, and, and you know that's that's no help, is it? Mm-hmm. This is tricky. This is tricky. Well, look, I mean, just briefly, I mean, and what's your sort of next schedule that you, you mentioned the screenplay? Is there any other recording or any other music that you've Yeah, we've, uh, we've got some new songs coming along for the band. Um, ben Mills has written a beautiful new song that, that I would like us to record. Um, we are we put out a Christmas single, uh, which, uh, which I was very pleased with, When a Child is Born. And uh, now we'll be thinking about uh, the next album. And also we've, we've, we're going to change our stage show a little bit. Um, it's going to be a bit more acoustic uh, at times so that we'll, we'll have a bit more light and shade. Um, and that's about it, really. You know, yeah. write a song, produce uh, something or other. I mean, somebody called me up the other day and asked me to produce an album. I don't know if I will. It's a lot of it's a lot of work, and I'm not so sure. Uh, again, do I want to work with those people? That's going to be that's always the question. I'm not sure that I do yet. It depends. If they offer me a whole bunch of money, I might have to say yes. <laughs> yes, I know that's always tricky, isn't it? I know a few. <laughs> I know one guy who's a producer who sometimes said a band would just kind of give him a load of half thought out ideas and sort of had that, you know, sprinkle some fairy dust. And it's like, no, you're going to have to give me something a bit more before I can yeah. start working on this. <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah. I can't, I'm not, yeah. I'm not actually going to be able to turn this into anything, but yeah. nice, nice try. I'm a producer, not a miracle worker. <laughs> yes. It's like, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah um, uh, I don't care. I don't care so much about producing other people's records unless it's people. Somebody, every so often somebody comes along who you really love. And you really want to produce it. You want to be involved in it, even if you're not the producer. You just want to be involved in it. And uh, then there's, there's things you do for money. Um, I don't do that much for money anymore. Uh, and my needs are, are fairly modest, and I'm very happy with my life. I live with my 17 uh, year old daughter. I'm a single dad these days, and I have the best time. I've got a great band. Um, you, see, you know, life is good. Brilliant. And on that note, I think I'm going to run away. Yes, me too. I'm going to go have tea. But look, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. And I can always send you the link and then you can always sure. you know, use, use it elsewhere. But thanks for your time and thanks for the amazing... Uh, yes. You're most welcome. I hope I didn't ramble too much. If I ramble too much, just cut things out. You know, just edit, edit things any way you like, as long as you don't make me say something really hideous. There was nothing hideous there. Anyway, look, I'll let you get going. But thanks okay. again for this. This has been you're amazing. You're most welcome. It's been lovely talking with you. Take and care. by the way, you're a fantastic listener. <laughs> which is incredibly important in a in a, an interview situation you're a really good listener oh Thought thank you let you let you have that bit of info thanks thanks for bye bye david nice to talk with you take care cheers bye bye and that was me in conversation with jim cregan talking about his life in music and he has got a very good website which is um, lots of w's dot 
Cregan.com. If you just go there, you'll find out more about what he's up to and also about his book that came out very recently titled And On Guitar, which has got a foreword by Sir Rod Stewart. This has been the C86 Show, David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these interviews have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. True. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.